Welcome back to the program. In the last episode, we saw New Netherland pulled out of disaster at the last moment by Peter Minuet and saved. But now, as we're nearing the end of the 1620s and into the early 1630s, things are going to change in the colony quite a bit. Management is going to change a couple times back in the Netherlands, and Peter Minuet is going to have to adapt as things rapidly start to progress for him. In this episode, we're going to cover a couple topics up until the point where Peter Minuet is let go. He is fired. He is canned. The reasons obscured by history, but we're going to see that this won't be the end of Peter Minuet. So we're going to see his last act here in New Netherland. Then he's going to show up again, and uh, stay tuned for that. One subject I'm going to mention briefly and then cover quite heavily in probably its own independent episode is around this time we're talking about in this episode, we see the first African slaves arrive in New Netherland. One of the dark legacies of New Netherland, because people like to talk about how many great legacies and how, how influential the Dutch presence in the Hudson River Valley and the nearby regions were to history. One of the dark legacies, and maybe the, the darkest legacy, the most evil legacy, is that the Dutch were responsible for bringing slavery to New Netherland. And often in history class, they just glaze over this, because once you get to the point of the Civil War, it's the North versus the South. But we're forgetting that there was this whole middle area of the country that had slaves for quite a while. New York State is going to have slavery uh, until 1828. So not too far away from the Civil War. We're talking less than 40 years. As you can imagine, that's going to be its own episode altogether. So on with the episode we go. The eternal problem the Dutch West India Company has with New Netherland, other than it really not making any money for them in the long run, is that they can't find people to move there. And we've talked about this before. The Netherlands is in its golden age. A lot of people don't want to move out of a golden age country to basically what we would consider like a Wild West situation. A frontier that we barely have mapped and we don't really know the natives that well. People don't want to move there when they could be in the middle of this civilization at its height. Historian Thomas Condon, I have a quote here by him, that really contrasts the Netherlands with what's going on in England at the time. He says, There were no large discontented groups in the Netherlands, nor were there any harassed religious groups there was even no great number of younger sons. In England at the time, usually the oldest son inherited the entire property of the father, which meant there were younger sons. There were, there were younger sons even of wealthy families who had little to nothing to their name. They had to go out in the world and earn it for themselves. We're going to see a lot of these people show up, uh, especially in the southern colonies. Right about this time, actually. So this is when they start showing up. So there's going to be some pressure in the south as English immigration starts to really build up there. Jamestown expands to be the colony of Virginia that you would see in the textbooks. Likewise, in the east, along the east coast, we have the growth of New England. Remember, in 1620, we have the Pilgrims, and we have Plymouth, and that very small little colony there that, that's basically nothing, and they're hundreds of miles away from New Netherland. Well, from the, the uh, population centers of New Netherland, rather. But now, at the end of the 1620s, and especially into the 1630s, you see this new group show up called the Puritans. And they're going to show up, over the course of a decade, they're going to show up in the tens of thousands. They're going to overwhelm the area we now call New England. And all of that history is the history you learn in the textbooks, the history you learn in school. Not the point of this podcast. The, this, the point of this podcast is to tell you what was going on elsewhere. So as New England was swelling with numbers, and the Puritans were basically breeding entire populations and towns... Every 20 years, they'd have 10 kids each, and you can imagine what would happen. What was going on in the Hudson River Valley? What was happening in the Connecticut Valley before the English moved in? What's going on in what's modern-day New Jersey? Okay, that's the stuff that gets glossed over. So that's what we're covering right now. 
How is the Dutch West India Company going to deal with the swelling of numbers of English immigrants to the east and to the south? Well, they're going to start changing the rules really quickly. They're going to want to get more people to come over, and they don't really have very many people who are willing to do so. Remember, in an earlier episode, they took a bunch of refugees, a bunch of these Walloons, and they just brought over 30 families and spread them out. Minuetta, Walloon himself, had to collect everybody back up again, put them all back together on Manhattan Island for the most part, left some traders up near modern-day Albany at Fort Orange and elsewhere. But now 1629 is going to be the pivotable... Pivotable. Pivotable. That's not a word. Pivotal... Pivotal year. <laughs> so Peter Minuet has been in charge of the colony now for two and a half years or so. And all of a sudden, the Dutch West India Company is just going to hand over control of the entire colony just to their Amsterdam chamber. Now, if you didn't watch our episode on the Dutch West India Company, you're going, what are you talking about? I'm going to spend about 30 seconds explaining this. So the Amsterdam chamber is just a subsection of the Dutch West India Company. And the company overall was so disinterested in the colony, they just handed over all control of the colony to their Amsterdam chamber. Now, the Amsterdam chamber has quite a lot of control over the Dutch West India Company in general. But now that they're in complete control of the New Netherland colony, this changes everything. So we're going to meet some new characters here along our way, and they're going to, they're going to follow us through the next couple decades here. But basically, let's say you're a big-time investor in Amsterdam, and you're part of the Amsterdam chamber... Well, you still have to share the power of the company with all these other chambers that make up the 19 directors in charge of this company. Well, now this colony is handed off just to your chamber. So you were already a big deal, but now you're going to be an overwhelming deal. And this is when we're going to introduce new characters like Killian Van Rensselaer. I'm going to call him Van Ren for short. So Van Ren, very successful guy. He got involved in the gem business. He's a diamond trader which makes me think he might have known Peter Minuet, and we'll talk about that later on. But he was a diamond trader, he owned lots of stock in the Dutch East India Company, the far more successful older company, and he owned a lot of stock in the Dutch West India Company. And now here he is in the Amsterdam Chamber, and he's in control of quite a bit of it because he owns quite a lot of shares in it. And now all of a sudden, 1629, things are going to start to turn into his favor. And Van Rens going to try to take a bite out of the company for himself, and direct things in the direction he wants to go into. This would be a lot like uh, what, what they call activist investors today. These are investors that got a huge chunk of money, and they see a company that they like, but they don't quite like everything that company's doing, and they spend enough money buying enough of the company that their voice needs to be heard, and they change the direction of the company. Activist investors. So Van Ren is going to be the activist investor at the time. He sees this colony, he sees that it's fledgling, he, he just witnessed the company just handed over to the Amsterdam Chamber, and he's saying, we can do more with this. This could really be something. Before this time, Van Ren witnessed, basically, the company position on New Netherland was, and I've said this in other episodes, let's extract as much profit out of it as we can without spending a lot of money. And then when the English show up or the French show up with an overwhelming force that would be too expensive to repel, we'll just give it up. So the company position was kind of like speculative oil drillers or gold mine drillers. They, they're going to go out. They're going to try to get profit. And when that profit's gone, they're out of there. There's no long-term investing. It's, explore, it's exploration. It's commodities. It's extraction. That's it. Van Ren is going to take a different point of view. And when he kind of gets control of this Amsterdam chamber for a while, he's saying, well, you know what? The climate's not that different than the Netherlands. Maybe we can start something there. Maybe we can start an agricultural base. 
Van Ren, in this sense, is going to be more, not like an activist investor, but more like a Warren Buffett, where he has a plan and he knows it's going to take a very long time to pay off. But the slow growth, the, the, the coming in of dividends and reinvesting and the compounding interest will cause the company to grow, right? So he's also thinking very long term, kind of like a Jeff Bezos, who came up with Amazon. And Amazon wasn't really making any profit until just a couple years ago. Uh, not not too long ago, you'd be shocked by it because they were constantly reinvesting the money they were making. So Van runs like that. He's like, okay, this, this little part of the company is not really making any money, but we have control of it now. And if we do the right things, maybe in a decade, two decades, or maybe I can hand this off to my family, my descendants, and they can make something of it. So he's thinking super long term. And it's going to pay off for him and not so much his buddies. All right, I'm done rambling. The big idea that he and his friends came up with were the invention of what's called patroon ships. Basically like little fiefdoms, little, little not kingdoms, but little areas where you're basically the lord of that area. And it would be agricultural base, a lot like a medieval manor. And so Van Ren and others are going to try to coax people over from the Netherlands and other places to settle in these areas that they have exclusive control over and become farmers, basically tenant farmers for them. And they'll start their own little fiefdoms, their own, almost like a kingdom that's just theirs in the new world. This sounds really weird because when we think of the new world, we think of people moving over here to get away from things like that. But the French had a similar idea going on around the same time. And the Dutch were now going to embrace the idea of making fiefdoms. And it wasn't the worst idea in the world. So they thought, well, let's get these big investors. We'll give them a big old chunk of land and they'll use their resources to coax people over there. People who normally wouldn't be able to afford their way over. They could be paid to go over and they'd be indentured servants for a while, have contracts, farm the land owned by somebody else and give up some of their crops as rent. And this plan, among other ideas, was part of the 1629 Charters of Freedoms and Exemptions. This was intended to help stimulate immigration to the colony. So the one thing they're going to do is create patroon ships, which we're going to talk about. Another thing they're going to do is open up the fur trade a little. So what they're going to say is anyone can trade furs. Anyone can buy furs from the natives, not just the company. But here's the hitch here. You can buy furs from whoever you want, but you have to sell them to the company. So instead of having a monopoly on the fur trade, the company is now going to have what's called a monocopy. So I can't control the supply, but I can control the demand. You have the furs now, but you have to sell them to me. That's a monocopy, controlling the demand, not the supply. So now free colonists who came over with their own dollars, they could participate in the fur trade to some degree. Meanwhile, if you're part of one of these patroon ships and you were brought over as a servant of somebody else to work on their land, that wasn't for you. You weren't allowed to do that sort of activity. So already we're seeing the emergence of classes and different people being allowed to do different things. And like I said earlier, yes, there is a the beginning of a slave presence in New Netherland, although it will never be as extensive as it gets in the South. In the long run, though, this Charter of Freedoms and Exemptions turns out to be just a failure. It doesn't stimulate immigration. There's going to be a time where New, ne New Netherland actually does kind of explode in population. It was not really a failure of a colony when uh, the English finally roll in. But this charter, it kind of falls apart. It doesn't really stimulate immigration, not to the degree people want it anyway. Back to patroon ships. So there's at least six people who had some interest in starting a patroon ship in the records that we have that survived to this day. Van Ren went so far as to establish a patroon ship and a couple others did. And then some people just kind of tipped their toe into the water of the idea and were mentioned in a, an official record or two once, and it never really came to fruition. 
We have a couple of their names. We know Killian Van Rensselaer, of course. He's going to be our number one guy. Then we have Samuel Godgen and Samuel Blomert. Now that guy, that guy's an SOB, all right? So we're going to pay attention to that guy. Because Samuel Blomert and Peter Minuet, they're going... I'm not, I'm not even going to ruin for you guys. Just stay tuned when we get to New Sweden, okay? And then Michael Powell and then Albert Berg. So we have at least five people that we know of, and there might be a couple more. I just don't have the records right here. Their idea was to carve up huge chunks of New Netherland into these large manors, these huge estates, similar to plantations. Only the, the majority of the workers there would be some sort of tenant farmer, rather than relying on slave labor. When we usually hear the word plantation in the United States today, we think of slave labor. In this case, it would be indentured workers or tenant farmers. Now, the patroon ships would serve not only to populate the colony, but to create a, a supply of food, a steady supply of food on this side of the Atlantic versus the European side of the Atlantic. And that food could feed the colony, but also could be traded to English colonies, like uh, the colonies down south, which were busy growing cash crops and not so much food. And that created starvation in some of these early years. And then even the English colonies out east, where the soil, the soil in New England isn't that great, so agriculture isn't as good as it was in what is now the Hudson River Valley and Point South. Also, that food could be loaded on a ships at a waypoint, New Amsterdam, and sent to feed people in all of those Caribbean islands the Dutch controlled. The ones that the Dutch really cared about and paid attention to, where they themselves were making cash crops, especially sugarcane. So in places like Brazil that were controlled by the Dutch for a while, they're too busy making really expensive cash crops, things people really want, like sugar. Meanwhile, the colder climate of New Netherland, well, they could grow less expensive crops that people can actually eat. So you're going to go to this really fertile island or really fertile section of South America, and you're going to grow the expensive stuff, but you still need to feed the people there. And so the Dutch were setting up this network. Well, Van Rensselaer had this idea in his head of starting a network whereby the expensive cash crops can go back to the Netherlands, and there was a readily available source of food close enough by to make it to those plantations in the Caribbean and South America. So under the plan, each patroon would be given four leagues on one side of a river or two leagues on both sides. What this means in the long term is a guy like Van Rensselaer is going to have a manor that takes over basically half of what is now the capital region in New York State. We're talking all of Rensselaer County, I wonder who that's named after, and Albany County. It's just a massive amount of land. The charter also specified that patroon ships had to be seven to eight leagues apart from each other, at least. Now, there are some reasons why that might be. Uh, this was a rule that was also set up with the patroon ships in Guyana. Now, one idea being, well, if the patroon ships grow, they need to have room to grow. And if they're right next to each other, they're going to start overlapping each other. There's going to be conflict, and the company's going to have this internal strife that it just certainly doesn't need. Because it's already dysfunctional as it is. You don't need people in the same chamber tearing each other's heads off because they're fighting over farmland. So the company actually assumed that these things would work and they would grow. They're putting a little more enthusiasm into New Netherland. They're saying, you know what, this is probably going to work in the long run. So it's a change in attitude from when uh, the whole company controlled New Netherland and not just the Amsterdam chamber. Another thing, it allowed patroons to conduct their own beaver trade. So this is Van Ren and others just taking a big bite out of the company. This would be like if I was the manager of Walmart and I was selling TVs out of the <laughs> out of the back of the store and putting the money in my own pocket and then bribing my you know area manager to keep his mouth shut. So now instead of going through the company, what they would do is they could conduct their own beaver trade and in, in furs, beaver furs, of course, they're not trading live beavers. 
And then what would happen is the company would be paid like a tax. It was 12 to 13 percent. The value of the skin would go to the company. The rest of it goes right into the patroon's pocket. And of course, the workers on those patroon ships, they couldn't participate in the trade because that'd be a conflict of interest. Of course, if you were a free colonist, you could. So as you can imagine, once people got to these patroon ships and they got wise to what was going on around them, they quickly tried to find a way out. As I mentioned in past episodes, the Dutch were very careful to trade with the natives for rights to use the land. They made purchases with the Native Americans. They treated them with respect for the most part and gave them the dignity of saying, you are in control of this land and I would like to negotiate with you for it. As we've seen in past episodes, the communication between them and the different cultural ideas of what land is and who can own it. But at least they put in a good faith effort, which is more than you could say for some other European groups that came over. Now, Van Ren was in a fortunate position because he wanted the land around Fort Orange, where all the beaver fur was being traded. I wonder why he wanted that land. So it was the most desirable land in the colony. And just a few years before, the Mohawk had chased the Mohegan square to the other side of the Hudson River. So the Mohegan had all these lands that they really didn't have access to anymore and that the Mohawk weren't exactly claiming yet. And the Mohawk were, of course, had treaties and alliances with the Dutch. So Van Ren was able to go in there and purchase some lands that the Mohegan previously occupied. And again, like I said, it's a huge chunk of land. And he took advantage of the fact that the Mohawk had already cleared the Mohegan out of there. And the Mohegan just sold their land to Van Ren. What are they going to use it for at this point? They can't, they can't even go onto it safely. By the time the negotiations are over and the land is purchased and they are finally ready to set up patroon ships, the deal had kind of changed a little. So the sources are iffy, but it seems like by the time the patroons are set up, the patroons aren't allowed to participate in the fur trade. That kind of seems to go, go away at some point. Now, when all the papers are signed and all the charters are made and the patroon ships are set up, it seems at some point they lost the ability to participate in the fur trade legally. Although pretty much every source says, yeah, Van Ren and all of his associates and any rich guy who owned part of the company had their own side hustle. Again, dealing beaver furs out of the back door. So that didn't seem to go away. It was just off the books. The patroonships also became hereditary. So you could just pass it down to your son and then he'd pass it down to his son. Literal little kingdoms right inside of the middle of what's the East Coast of the United States today. In fact, the patroons could tax their residents up to 10% or so and ran their own criminal justice system. They, they were the magistrates, the, the legal authority, the tax collectors of the area, and the, uh, and the landlord. So it, it, they are kind of like little kingdoms. Everything except for cr uh, capital punishment cases. In the case of murder, it goes to the colony officials. But other than that, the patroonship on paper was its own little land. Unfortunately, all the other patroonships fall apart. It's just Van Ren. He stands alone. And actually, his patroonship is going to last until the 19th century. And I, I think I might talk about that far later on, so put that out of your mind. Between the 10 years where he starts the patroonship, he uh, stimulates immigration to the colony, specifically to his part of the colony. He brings over 80 or so people. Doesn't sound like much, but there you go. A large minority of which are not Dutch. You're talking about Germans and English folks and anyone who wants to go to the colony. In New Netherland, in general, people are coming over for economic opportunity. It's not a religious thing. It's not a patriotic thing. They're coming over here for opportunity. 
very similar to New York City today. You have a lot of different immigrant groups and a lot of people go to New York to make it big or to make it rich or to become successful. It's about money and success and the American dream. And even at this time, there was that a little hint of it, a little seed of it at least. Now Van Rensselaer really wanted to grow tobacco because that was the cash crop of the day. In the South, it was just taking off in all the English colonies in the South. This is before King Cotton moves in. And uh, everyone in Europe is getting a taste for tobacco like we talked about in our episode on the Netherlands, I believe. So Van Ren wanted to get in on this. He wanted to be the tobacco supplier to the Netherlands, which would basically be the supplier to all of Northern Europe outside of England. But unfortunately, tobacco, it does grow in New York State. You can grow it all day. It's just not as good as the stuff in the South. And so you can't really compete with the stuff coming from the English colonies. So New Netherland, tobacco ends up mostly being a failure. Van Rensselaer has his own ship made, and he calls it Rensselaerwick. He names it right after this patroon ship. And that ship's responsible for bringing in people and conducting trade up and down the Hudson within the company. And a lot of people saw this as a power grab, because it seemed like, and they're right, it seems like Rensselaer is just taking a bit more of the company than he should be allowed to take. Again, he's conducting all sorts of shady trade deals up and down the Hudson River, back in the Netherlands. He seems to run his own criminal justice system there, and it almost sets itself apart as part of the colony. It becomes like its own thing, like there's New Netherland and then there's Rensselaerwick, at least for a long while. And the food he was growing would be sold to the company, even though this is all part of, in theory, one big company, happy family, one chamber at least, the food grown on his patroon ship is not given to the company. He sells it to the company. So again, he's making money having established these exclusive rights. He's, he's making money twice, because basically he's selling food to the company, and then he himself is making money off the company as an owner of the company. I don't know what to compare this to. This would be like m me being a major owner in a car manufacturing company. I wish. I, let's say I own a huge chunk in Toyota. And then I make it so Toyota makes an exclusive deal buying tires from the Eric Giannis Tire Company. Now, I, of course, I'm the sole owner of that company. So I'm using my influence in one company to force them to buy from another company, which I own in whole. So you can see how other investors in the Dutch West India Company were like, ooh, this doesn't, this doesn't seem right. This is a problem, right? This, is, this isn't functional. He's abusing the system. And there is some evidence to back this up. Other than the points we've already brought up, there are written examples of livestock being sent to inhabit New Amsterdam, what is now New York City, and Van Ren managing somehow to get those animals sent from New Amsterdam back up to his patroon ship further north. Likewise, he also lured away talent from the other parts of the colony, especially New Amsterdam, to the patroon ship, skilled labor. People who could build houses, the best farmers, people who are skilled with ironworking. So he seems to have been cheating the system. He's double dipping, triple dipping. He's got his hands in every pocket, and no matter who pays who, or who employs who, he's making some money off of it. He's got the whole game rigged. Anyway, when word of this gets back to the Amsterdam Chamber, his power starts to fall apart rapidly. His allies start to fall away, and this coalition he seems to have to control the New Netherland colony for a while quickly falls apart. And so he gets to keep his patroonship, but his influence over policy as a whole just starts to disappear rapidly as he gets a reputation for rigging the system and smuggling. He was also accused of smuggling. And there's a lot of evidence that says 
he and his family were involved in a lot of smuggling, and so that'll come up quite a bit in the future. So this leads into our subject of the firing of Peter Minuet, this great guy who fixed the colony. Some people believe that he had a close relationship with Killian Van Rensselaer and the Rensselaer family. He was trained as a diamond cutter, and the Van Rensselaers made some of their fortune, at least, as a diamond merchant. And so maybe they already knew each other. Maybe there was an arrangement there to work with one another. And certainly the slight abuses of power, like, again, the buying of livestock from New Amsterdam to the patroonship, it seems that Peter Minuet gave Rensselaer some favors, perhaps. So one of the leading theories is that Minuet was let go after Rensselaer lost his power in the chamber. That's one possibility. But there's some evidence that suggests the opposite conclusion, that Van Ren had shifted his power somewhat, and it might be a little more subtle, but that Minuet was let go because he wasn't enough of an ally to old Van Ren. And now the, the best evidence for this is, when once Peter Minuet is fired and he's sent back to the Netherlands, the guy who takes temporary control, his last name is Kroll. And this is the guy who actually worked for Van Ren to buy him the patroonship from the Mohegan in the first place. So this guy was already a business associate, associate of old Van Ren. Not to mention when they finally sent the permanent replacement director, it's going to be Van Rensselaer's own nephew. So huge power grab. I don't, I don't know why people in the first camp of this argument don't see this. In my opinion, it appears that Peter Minuet was pushed out of the way for a little nepotism to push in relatives and friends of the Van Rensselaer Alliance, which may or may not be starting to fall apart but certainly had enough power to put the guy's nephew in charge of the entire colony. So poor Minuet is canned. Not only that, but on his way back to the Netherlands, they stop off in England, and then he's arrested there because he helped the Dutch squat on English land claims. Because of course, all of New Netherland is also claimed by England. So he gets arrested for a while there, and then eventually he finds his way back to mainland Europe. But you can just tell, there's no documents, but you could tell what's going to happen next which I'm saving for a much later episode, and you better listen to it. He's pissed. You know he's pissed. He got canned after he saved the day. He's sitting there going, I did this. I put this whole colony back together from junk, and I'm getting canned for this? I'm out of here? Because Van Ren wants to move in his relatives in all these positions? I was nice to the guy. I, 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 you know, I kissed his rear end as much as I possibly could, and I'm getting canned for this. So you're going to see Peter Minuet again. And like I said a couple episodes ago, his story is a lot like Henry Hudson's story, okay? So if you get fired, you go back out on the streets, hit the pavement, you either find a new employer, or you start your own business, you start your own company, whatever, and then you compete with the old one and you show them what you're really worth. Minuet's gonna do the same thing. And it's, it's going to be a really, really cool story. And so I'm gonna save that one for a different time. So just leave you with that. Minuet's super pissed. The patroon ships are set up. Old Van Ren has dug his feet in, and he's gonna, his family's gonna control this place for 200 years, so that's quite remarkable. Also, those Walloons, those early settlers, they're gonna start to kind of peel away and disappear. A couple of them stay in the colony, and there's still families to this day who can trace their ancestors to that time and period among the Walloon community. But a lot of them are gonna try to go back to Europe as soon as they can, or go elsewhere. So the Walloon influence is slowly starting to peel away. Peter Minuet, like I said earlier himself, was a Walloon. Uh, what else is going on at this time? Fort Amsterdam, which is on Manhattan Island, which is now called New Amsterdam. 
that's going to be the place of inspection. That's where all the ships have to go to be inspected to go up and down the Hudson and elsewhere. So this is the, the very first time period where what's going to become New York City becomes this center of trade and commerce and culture. It's going to start right here because this is where you need to go if you want to get a ship in or out of the colony, which again is going to cover an area that represents five or six English colonies 100 years from now, five or six of the original 13 colonies that you learn about in school. Finally, like I said before, we see a slow trickle of immigration. Usually settlers from Europe bought land that was previously farmed by Native Americans. This way they wouldn't have to clear it themselves. Usually near rivers. Again, we're talking about people from a lot of the low countries. So the Netherlands, Luxembourg today, Belgium today. And so they're not going up into the mountains and up into the hills like the Scots and the Irish will in later American history. They're staying down in the river valleys. They're buying land that was previously occupied and farmed so they don't have to clear too much of it. So we're seeing people start to trickle in little by little. We're seeing the rich and powerful landowners smuggle things in and out of the colony. And we're even seeing individuals help facilitate that smuggling. So New Netherland is going to stop really being profitable to the shareholders back in the Netherlands. But as far as the people living there, there's going to be quite a few of them who make a lot of money off the books. So that's where I'm going to leave you. We have a colony whose savior was just kicked out. And we're going to have some trouble times coming up ahead. So please stay tuned. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.